Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon or wish to make a one-time donation, please visit the show PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. If you wish to sponsor the show or have any other questions or feedback, please reach out to me at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of HPO. Today, I'm uh, joined by by two people. I uh, got my my sometimes co-host, Nicole, with me and our guest, Matt Hart, who Nicole and I actually have known for quite some time. I think we met Matt at a trail running camp for, for veterans with, through an organization called Team RWB years ago, probably back when Nicole and I were both like really new into ultra running. And I think Matt maybe had a little more of a background around it than, than we did, but uh, it's been interesting to follow Matt's kind of career trajectory, I guess you'd call it throughout. Cause we met him as a runner, but I know he's had his uh, he's had a few different irons in the fire, so to speak with other things uh, related to journalism as well as uh, some other stuff too. So um, we welcome Matt Hart onto the show, Matt, how's it going? Yeah, it's going great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. We're excited to talk to, to you about a few things. Um, I think one thing is, I mean, you've got a book that just came out that I, that I read, Nicole read, and it, the way I describe it to people is this is like the closest I've been to keeping up to Nicole in reading pace <laughs> <laughs> because normally when she'll read a book, it's funny cause she reads a ton of books when she's got some free time and it, she'll, she'll get a book and I'll see her start reading and I'll ask her maybe a couple days later, Oh, how's the book going? She's like, Oh, I finished that one a day ago. I'm on to this other one. Now I'm halfway through it. <laughs> I just like shake my head. Uh, but yeah, when we got this one, she dove into it first and then I got into it and was kind of catching up a little bit, but we, we, we really enjoyed it. Yeah. It was so captivating for sure. It definitely, um, you were definitely keeping pace on this one. So thanks guys. Yeah. I appreciate that. Glad you liked it. And Matt, I want we we definitely want to dive into the book and kind of go through some of that stuff and let our listeners know about it. But uh, if you wanted to share a little bit, like what is your background? Because uh, I know you weren't into journalism right out the gate. Like where did you kind of begin your career, and how did you get into kind of running, and then ultimately you know writing for? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you did a lot for like outdoor magazine or outside magazine, the New York Times, and then ultimately your own book. Not yeah. yeah, that's quite a journey. Um, I mean, I grew up in New Hampshire. I was, uh, you know, as I'm sure you hear a lot, one of the fast kids on the playground. I think that was the first time I ever realized that I could run or was quick. Um, but, you know, kind of played basketball was my thing for years and years, um, through high school at least. Um, and then, you know, I fast forward, graduated from college, um, started sort of studying computer science on my own and, and got a job at Microsoft and moved to Seattle and Redmond to work at Microsoft as a software engineer. 
So that was my first career really. But Seattle was sort of this bustling endurance zone at the time. You know, uh, Scott Jurek was just coming up and Eco Challenge uh, had been on television for years. And so, you know, looking for something to do in my free time, just as a Microsoft software engineer, I, I was, uh, you know, doing some martial arts and some endurance stuff and just got really hooked on adventure racing, which then led me to uh, ultra running. And eventually I left my job and, and tried to, you know, get sponsorship and I lived sort of this meager professional life uh, where I also coached athletes, you know, I wasn't highly paid, but um, so I was so interested in the sports science of improving my own performance that I started to coach other athletes. And I had done this at Microsoft, you know, I had friends that I coached that worked there. And so it was just sort of this natural thing for me to do. And so for 10 years, I coached uh, ultra runners and uh, that led to writing about coaching for trail runner magazine, actually. They called me up and I was just in the scene. I'd see the editor a lot. I was at all the races, you know, and they needed someone to write the column. And that just sort of ignited this. That was 2007 or eight, I think. And so at, from that point on, I just became, yeah, I had always had this interest in, you know, I was obsessed with crack hour books and narrative nonfiction and magazine writing, long form magazine writing. And so that was a side thing that really interested me and in how I basically educated myself after school. And so, then the world's just started to come together as after a magazine asked me to write about it, I was, you know, just sort of obsessed with uh, and ambitious to write for bigger magazines and write, you know, more broad stories. Um, when you're deep in a sport, you know, you can look around at the media and sort of shake your head like that's not quite right. And I, I just wanted to do it better. I, I'd seen a lot of the, you know, major magazines sort of miss the, miss it, miss ultra running and, and what the sport is like and what it really means to the athletes. And so, yeah, I mean, that was the journey. The writing journey kind of started then in, in 08. Um, and then just, you know, became a freelance journalist, really, and started to, you know, I had this obsession with performance-enhancing drugs because it was, you know, the Lance Armstrong era when I first started writing. And I had been, I had taken that story, Hook, Line, and Sinker, and I, I had felt so very betrayed by that story. I had the yellow wristband. I, I thought, you know, the ethos and everything Armstrong was putting out in the media, I just totally bought into that hard work can can you know overcome any obstacle and and so that served me very well but then it was terribly disheartening to realize that it, it wasn't true and so you know read through all those books and um, then just really started to report on it myself whether it's a you know an ultra runner that got popped or you know I wrote about Carmichael training systems and I wrote about um the Lance Armstrong hundred million dollar lawsuit. I wrote about that for the Atlantic. And so I was, it was just sort of one of these things I was really interested in um, from, from my really meager beginnings in the sport. It just, you know, I mean, if you're doing it without dope, without drugs, without cheating, you're just sort of offended by those that, <laughs> that, that go out of their ways to cut corners. And, and so, yeah, it became a beat of mine. If you could, if you could say that. Yeah. And I know like one of the interesting things with that whole conversation, and this is completely independent of ultra running as well, although it certainly bleeds into it is the, just this idea where, you know, you have someone like Lance Armstrong, who's like very much the poster boy, or in some cases, the poster woman in, in a, in a sport or a discipline. And, and uh, you know, they get in trouble for some sort of uh, skirting the rules or blatant cheating. And, and then it's like, okay, the first thought is like, well, 
that person's bad. That person is doing it the wrong way, but the sport as a whole is still something as a community we can get behind, we can enjoy, and we can, we can still root for these athletes. But then you start going down that rabbit hole and you see things like, oh, it wasn't just Lance Armstrong. And it wasn't just at Lance Armstrong lying either. You look at like just the organizations around him, like Carmichael Training Systems, who at first said, hey, we had no knowledge of this. So, you know, Chris was open about that. And I mean, it's not unique to them, but it's like something that we see in a lot of these organizations now, too, when where you almost get this feeling where I think, at least for me, when you see kind of a popular athlete get in trouble, you almost want to stop there and not look any further because you know, if you look any further, you're going to start finding out how dirty it can actually get and how incriminating some of these areas are at times. Well, in the court system, you would say, go to the deep pockets, right? And it kind of all goes to the money and it just seems like, yes, where is it tied to? It seems to be, that's a common theme. Right. Follow the money. That's a journalistic sort of trope. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well, and one thing, Matt, I don't want to jump in front of you at all, but uh, I do want to actually say the name of your book before we get too far into this podcast. So the book, and for those of you watching on YouTube can see here, it's called Win at All Cost Inside Nike Running and it's Culture of Deception by Matt Hart. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think what we kind of did a a little bit of an umbrella uh, description of here is what you did in a little more detailed kind of focused around uh, mostly, I guess, track and field or Olympic distance endurance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as I started to, I mean, I, I came, I became involved in the story partly because of my reporting around the topics, but I, I essentially got a USB that had been uh, a file had been stolen from the United States anti-doping agency. We think by fancy bear, which is a Russian uh, hacking organization. And so that's how I got involved. I got my hands on that. And as someone who writes about this stuff and understands it on some level, then I just started pitching the story to various news outlets Um, but you know, what's interesting about that is the Russians were trying to discredit America, American athletes. Um, and they found a bunch of athletes to be on TUEs, you know, therapeutic use exemptions, but yeah, uh, to answer your question, yeah, it centers around the track, track and field and and marathon running, um, you know, middle distance and marathon running. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was interesting too. And I know Nicole has some questions that she's eager to ask and I got a, a few as well. And the, the interesting thing, I think for, I'm trying to, when I was reading the book, part of the thing I did while I was doing is I was like, okay, I'm trying to put myself in Matt's shoes here in terms of like, how do you write a book that for one is going to be compelling enough to sell? Cause ultimately like the more copies you sell, the more of this message you get out there and uh, you know, you want to continue to be a journalist. So you have to sell books. So it's like you, but you have to work with what you have as well. So when I'm kind of, when we're like, when I'm looking at the different characters that kind of continually pop up throughout the course of the book, there's some that are like just all over the place. And then there's some where you get like a lot of kind of description, but not a lot of kind of firsthand commentary from them or direct responses from them. And to me as a reader, I'm taking that as, well, I know Matt, I know he's probably going to try to give each one of these people an equal voice if they're willing to give the voice. So ultimately my thought is like, well, this person's talking a lot, therefore they must've been very willing to talk or this person didn't say any quotes directly to Matt, therefore they must've just ghosted him the entire time. And then there's everything in between. Is that kind of the experience as you spend the you know months and years kind of pulling in the information and developing these primary and secondary sources? Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's interesting that you pick up on that. I mean, the process, I mean, even going for a longer magazine story, 
that's somewhat contentious or has two sides to it from depending on the perspective or the person you talk to, you know, the, the job is to continually call, continually uh, email, call, try to get in touch with them, explain what you're doing. And if that doesn't work, explain it again later, a week later. And so the book really was three and a half years of doing that. And I got, you know, I, I was shocked and surprised with people who didn't want to talk, but equally as much uh, with, with people involved in the story who would talk. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's a, it's, a, it's an interesting job. You know, there are people hang up on you in anger and uh, who don't want the story to come out. I mean, I will say initially there was an athlete who was so angry and, and full of vitriol and trying to cancel me that um, it actually gave me the motivation and, and the signal that this is a big story. And, and if I keep digging, I'm going to find out what this athlete's <laughs> freaking out about. And I, and I did. And, and so in a lot of ways, the way that people respond is sort of a, a good signal that you're on to something. And that was an early signal for me that I was, you know, scratching in the right places. But, you know, everywhere from Nike to from Nike as a corporation, you know, not willing to participate, responding and sometimes playing little games to, you know, uh, Al Alberto Salazar's assistant coach. Um, sitting down with me, you know, I was, it, it was a, it was a roller coaster to say the least, but yeah, you picked up on, you know, I leaned on, there's some athletes and in interviews I did that I did, that didn't make the book just, just because of space constraints or their stories interesting, but you know, not, um, it just didn't warrant a, a whole chapter or, or, you know, an enormous section. So those are just, you know, narrative decisions you're making the whole way. There's, there's so much that I left on the cutting room floor, embarrassingly. So, I mean, this is my first book. So I wrote like 40,000 words on the history of the drugs, like where testosterone came from, and, you know, how they, I think it was mailman's urine that they ended up uh, extracting dried testosterone from in the early days. And so like, I told that whole story, my editor was just like, no, like this is, <laughs> it's too far afield. I mean, it's interesting, but it's, it shouldn't be in the book. So anyway, that all that to say is like, that's the constant decision because you have to keep the narrative sort of propelling forward. And I hope I did that. I mean, I know I took some tangents here and there, but um, yeah, I mean, that's the whole, that's the whole job interviewing around the topics and then figuring out where the pieces go and making it cohesive. So. Yeah. I thought like the way the book flowed was really well in that regard. I know like there was definitely tangents, but I felt like they were like, at, like, you know, a range of different rabbit holes that I wanted to go down that you went down. And uh, so like you could follow the flow of the story. And then you as soon as you get really curious on a specific avenue, you seem to dive into it as much as you possibly could with the information you had. And, you know, ultimately, when I kind of looked back at it after reading it, I was just thinking about some of the stuff because, you know, I'm I participate in ultra marathon. Nicole participates in it as well. And, you know, we have backgrounds in track and field and things like that. And a lot of the characters we grew up watching or in Nicole's cases, sometimes competing against to a degree at, in, in college uh, or, or close to anyway. It was just interesting to kind of see some of those stories. And then ultimately, uh, I think kind of piece together like stuff that I had seen pop up in the news and get some highlight for a while, but then kind of fizzle out or fade back. And then another story would pop up and it was a long enough timeline. I think you did a really good job of like emphasizing this was the timeline was long enough where you could kind of get lost if you just tried to kind of like piece everything together on your own. 
but this book does that for you. Like you read this book and then you're like, oh yeah, I remember that being talked, but I had just forgotten about it because it was two years ago. And oh, this is connected to that, but I would have never thought of that at the time because they happened three years independent of one another. Right. Yeah, I mean, the Lance Armstrong story was sort of happening at the beginning of uh, the Alberto Salazar and the Nike Oregon Project team story. And so those overlap. And of course, anyone can figure that out if they look at the timeline, but you know, they're disparate stories in the media. And so I'm glad you f- felt that way. I mean, that's, I really tried to do that, you know, the, the regression back to the Athletics West team. You know, I thought that was relevant. That was another Nike team that's trained, you know, on their campus and also, you know, had terrible allegations about the team and they had a death on campus. And so, and eventually shuttered the program. And it's analogous to, you know, actually what just happened with the Oregon Project team. So, yeah, I mean, deciding what parts to, to leave in and take out. There's a couple of them that I'm kind of kicking myself for not including, <laughs> but um All right, folks, I'm excited to announce that Eggweights has partnered with me as an athlete and HPO podcast, and I want to share with you a few things that I use their products for. Uh, first, I love their run pods, which are these ergonomic weights that are two pounds that fit right in the palm of your hand. I love these to help with my arm drive and form consistency that they work with the University of Southern California's Clinical Science Research Lab to show the benefits for those. On the strength side of things, I'll actually sometimes go all the way up to their five-pound handhelds here for box jumps and lunges. And finally, I really like their total massage toolkit that you can customize. I really like it to dig out some of those sore spots in my calves and hamstrings. All their stuff come in these great little nice egg weights tote bags. So check them out at eggweights.com. That's E-G-G-W-E-I-G-H-T-S dot com and enter promo code ZACK15 for 15% off your order. That's Z-A-C-H-1-5 for 15% off. Alrighty, folks, now back to the show. No, I would echo Zach's thoughts as well. I felt like it was really helpful to kind of see how you piece together all of the timing. And I think that gave a lot of um, context to the story. One thing that I wanted to ask you about is, has there, from your perspective, been a shift in terms of where that line is in terms of how we would define cheating? Has It, it just seems as though there were some athletes that maybe stepped back and they changed their perspective as time went on. I, I just think that from your perspective, what has maybe impacted that or what other factors was it the Lance Armstrong story that that maybe took people um, aback and changed their perspective? Because it it did seem as though there was a shift in how people define cheating. Yeah, this is one of the sort of moral gray areas of athletics that we don't usually talk about until the Oregon project implodes. And, and now we've got, and, and I, you know, that's what I was trying to get at in the book. There are real gray areas here. Um, I, I feel like the Armstrong era where would, you know, where it's just blatant EPO injection and, 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 and drug use, you know, obviously drugs on the WADA band list, that kind of thing. And drugs, you can't get, you can't get a therapeutic use exemption for testosterone. So you, you just can't race if your testosterone is so low. You've got to, you know, do other things like rest and train better, more intelligently to get your testosterone up. Anyway, so 
I feel like that was one era and that's so shocked and scared the sporting world that we see like team sky, you know, we now know they moved into what prescription drugs will help us. And this is the same around the same time where Armstrong or uh, Salazar is doing the same thing. And Salazar at the end of his career, you know, and I detailed this in the book, you know, he had cratered his physiology basically is how I put it. You know, he had overtrained himself to such a degree that he flared. He, he was huge in 82 and then literally disappeared because he had overtrained himself to such a degree. And he learned through working with doctors for the next 10 years that prednisone and, and prescription drugs can actually help him perform. Um, and so he took those lessons, unfortunately, after the Armstrong era and, and testing got better. I mean, testing's very sensitive right now. And so it's, you're less likely to get away with, I'm, I'm sure people are still microdosing, but you're just less likely to get away with things because the testing has advanced so far. Um, and the biological passport. And so now we've moved into this gray area where you can have drugs in your system that your doctor prescribes for you. And so it, it's, it's a really kind of a, I mean, it is a moral gray area. There's no other way to say it. it where's your comfort level? And in, in the book, Lauren Fleshman, you know, goes right up against this. She's had some, she had had some breathing issues. Uh, her, her coach and her, her doctor rather says, you don't have asthma. She gets tested for it. But then she runs into Alberto, who's the biggest coach in the world. She's sponsored by Nike. He's the Nike coach. And he convinces her, we'll get you the prescription drugs you need for, for that. And so he does this method that he's developed over the years, which he did with Adam Goucher and various other athletes. Or they run around the track and then they sprint up the stairs before seeing the doctor, which puts them into this, you know, when they take the breath test, their lung capacity is um, lower because, you know, of course, because they've been sprinting. Uh, but that's the way to fail the test to get the drug. And Lauren, bless her heart, has this moral compass that's like, wait a second, this doesn't feel right. This is against the spirit of the sport. But, you know, all that to say her example is great, but there are a, any number of athletes who didn't feel that way, who who use the drugs as a performance enhancement, whether it's diuretics, you know, to lose weight before the Tour de France or, or a big race or thyroid medication or prednisone, which is, you know, a systemic anti-inflammation drug, you know, you just feel better when you're training on it and you need less sleep. And so a lot of these drugs, basically the, you know, the higher, the um, powerful coaches had drug uh, doctors on staff and they could sort of trial and error, figure out what would work. But Alberto had experience with all this in his own athletic career. And so, I mean, it really has opened this can of worms. And David Walsh, who helped expose the Armstrong uh, lie and the Armstrong story, has basically said, you know, the, the doping fight has gone really far, but not quite far enough because now athletes are using legal drugs for the wrong reasons. And that sums up the problem we're in now uh, quite well, I think. Yeah, Matt, and correct me if I'm wrong here, and just so our listeners are maybe not quite as familiar with, with endurance sport, uh, is that like, when we're when we talk about like trying to get an inhaler for a therapeutic use exemption essentially like that kind of stems back to this scenario where you can get uh asthma induced like you can get in asthma induced from endurance training so you can like kind of essentially overtrain yourself into a state where you do develop that kind of a physiology mm -hmm. and actually need an inhaler so there's a small portion of the population that perhaps would meet that bill or you just have like a kid who's had asthma before they even got into endurance sport and has an inhaler and then finds themselves in an endurance sport in which case they would need a therapeutic therapeutic use exemption in order to continue to use that inhaler and participate but yeah. when you when you have a situation where 
you have a squad of athletes that are, you know, a dozen plus athletes and 11 of the 12 are on an inhaler due to sports induced asthma. It raises some red flags. It's like, it's not necessarily like it just the percentages don't match up, I guess, is the way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and uh, I mean, Al- Alberto to mask this, uh, I have to say he would lie to the media. He would say, we're not on anything. We're all, the only thing we take is uh, iron is what he'd say to the media sometimes. And, you know, as I found reporting the book, that's just such a blatant lie. It's ridiculous. I mean, almost all the athletes were on thyroid medication and we have their records. So, you know, the real tragedy here is that a coach is encouraging you to go on a drug that you might need to be on for the rest of your life. I mean, this is one of the scenarios. There's a bunch of them that can happen when a coach acts as a doctor and he's not trained as a doctor. So Alberto had, you know, um, he had been giving Mo Farah drugs that Mo Farah has this condition where his kidneys create too much uh, calcium. And so he was at risk of, you know, renal failure and heart failure if he like supplemented with calcium. So Alberto didn't know any of this because he wasn't his doctor. So we had him on high doses of vitamin D and this drug called calcitonin, which also has cancer implications, which the athletes found out later. But you, you can, I'm, all, all, I'm just trying to explain, like it can get out of control really quick. Mm-hmm. A, doc, a, a coach who's not a doctor prescribing drugs that seem benign, you know, what's high dose vitamin D? You and I can get that at GNC right down the street. It's, it seems benign, but unless you're a doctor and you know the history of the athletes, you really are putting them at risk. And the thyroid's the, the grossest one because it took Adam Goucher 10 years to slowly wean himself off a drug that he never needed. Mm-hmm. And it's just heartbreaking. Like it was supposed to boost his performance and maybe it helped him a little bit. But at the end of the day, you know, he's weaning himself off. He's got weight fluctuations. He hates the way he feels. You know, too much thyroid medication is just as bad as too low. You just don't feel right. You're, you're tired. You don't want to train. And so the implications of what he was doing are, are really obvious now. But he just thought, we'll throw all this at the, at the, at the wall and see what works. And, and for a while, you can see the performances all crept up for almost everyone involved. And, you know, I just think there's collateral damage there and long-term health implications to the athletes. And, and of course, that's why he's banned. That's why we have WADA and USADA, because uh, there are implications here that a coach or even a doctor sh- who's focused on short-term performance just isn't going to see. Well, and I mean, it was almost comical to the extent that like he was doing things to these athletes that he had clearly done to himself. And then in, at, in his 50s, had a heart attack. Like, yeah. I mean, he like literally gave himself a heart attack and, yeah. uh, you know, it was, uh, I can't imagine those athletes under his tutelage at the time weren't thinking like, wait a second here, here we have someone who otherwise would be defined as a former super athlete getting in a heart attack in their fifties. It's like, I mean, obviously there's a genetic component too, that could be at play there, but yeah. you have to wonder, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, so that's a thread that I, um, you know, I leave in the book for, for the reader to interpret on their own because it's impossible to say one way or the other. But, you know, the same thing happened with Lance Armstrong, right? So Michele Ferrari said, I think I gave Lance Armstrong cancer. And that's because testosterone and, and growth hormone, these are growth drugs, they multiply cells. And so the doctor had sort of realized maybe I had a part in this. And in the recent 30 for 30 that Armstrong's in, he tips his hat to this. He says, we actually think it was the HGH. And so, you know, that's, I mean, what worse health implication could there be? Heart attacks and cancer. I mean, these are two big killers 
in the world and definitely in America. And so, I mean, that's a, a lot of the reason I went back to the East Germans in the seventies as well. I mean, they, the, there's a generation of athletes just riddled with issues. I mean, they're having kids uh, with deformities, you know, with the women that were on high doses of male test male uh, hormones, you know, are having trouble having kids and then having kids with deformities. And like, it's just, it's not, these drugs are powerful and there are, terrible implications and you know cancer and heart attacks are one of them i mean alberto had been on testosterone for so long that it seems clear that maybe that well sorry it's not clear but maybe that could have attributed to it you know it's it's uh it's scary it's scary that he felt like many of these drugs are just inconsequential and he can dole them out to athletes but just such a win at all cost mentality and just such a mad scientist approach. It just, yeah. I, all of the um, antidotes in your book, I think were really helpful at kind of conveying that message for sure. Um, one thing that Zach and I were talking about that we wanted your take on is, so we see this clear delineation of um performance enhancing drugs are bad. We've defined that as morally wrong, but then there's the new implications of these super shoes. And where does that all fit in? Because it seems like that has been given the blessing of sports with some restrictions to go forward and for athletes to use those. But mm -hmm. it's just interesting where that fits in because obviously that's giving a boost in terms of performance as well. Yeah. And so that's at the end of the book chronologically where it fits. And that's just another conundrum, I feel like. I mean, there are the rules help us navigate these things, whether it's the drugs or the shoes. But the problem that we've run into with Nike, you know, their market cap's 160 billion, their hands, head and shoulders, uh, you know, bigger and better than any other sports brand in the world. And I mean, they've just corrupted some of the organizations, to put it. Uh, as harshly as I can, but that's the truth. You know, Sebco was a Nike athlete, a Nike man on the Nike with a Nike salary when he took the head job, you know, at world athletics, which used to be IAAF. And so you, when you see them adjudicate to Nike's favor, it's, it's really easy to see how that happens when you've basically stacked the jury with uh, Nike, former Nike athletes. And so, I mean, I, I think that, just personal opinion, the shoes have taken a lot away from my enjoyment of what's going on. I mean, it's fun to see people break records, but we don't know what we're dealing with. And I feel so bad for the athletes who are racing marathons against Nike athletes with shoes that, you know, could be giving them a five or 6% performance enhancement. And, and they're racing in regular old shoes with no performance. And it's just a heartbreaker. Uh, I mean, as you, I'm sure we want to see two athletes at the starting line with with no, you know, like ancillary benefits, whether it's drugs or, or technology. And it just kind of takes something away from the sport when you know that, oh, well, that athlete won the race because I didn't have the right shoe. That's just, uh, it's, it's muddied the waters. It's, it's uh, not, not as fun for me. I mean, hopefully we'll go back to some sense of normality when all the other brands create parity and, and catch up. But mm -hmm. well, a few things on that because I did a deep dive into this topic with uh, Dr. Jeff Burns, who is a, like a biomechanics PhD at, at the University of Michigan, and they have one of the only force plate treadmills available to him. So he's done a ton of studies on these shoes and he's like, they work, they work very well. And it's like almost a slam dunk, three to 5% improvement 
across all paces. So it doesn't matter if you're averaging 10 minute mile pace for your marathon or you're averaging four and a half minute pace for your marathon. But the thing, there's a few things that stick out to me with that, um, both pro and con actually. And with the cons is it wasn't like, okay, now we have this shoe and now everyone has it. So therefore our records are just going to be incrementally faster it was a scenario where these prototypes were available to Nike athletes as far back as 2015, if I remember correctly. So now we do have brands catching up. I mean, even our sponsor, Nicole, and I, we are starting to play around with prototypes with this type of technology. And it's, uh, I mean, every brand who has a stake in the road running game is developing or already has developed a version of the Nike Next Percent. They have to. Yeah. And, but the problem here, I think is with this is there's this gap between 2015 and what will likely end up being like sometime in the early 2020s, where mm-hmm. now we have athletes. Um, I don't, I mean, Galen Rupp takes a lot of flack in your book for rightfully so I think, but like he's never ran a marathon in a shoe other than one of these performance shoes. So we don't even know from a historical standpoint, what his marathon potential actually is measured up against history. And we see that sometimes we see that to a degree in ultra running stuff now too, where, you know, some of these fast times on the roads and the tracks have been popping up in 2017, 2018, 2019. And some of those are with shoes that would have been, you know, not, or that were, are going to give a performance benefit. And those, and in, in, in some cases, athletes who didn't give us a a primer, I guess, maybe you'd say of what they could do in the, in a standard pair of shoes where we can see like, okay, that's great. That's cool. You ran that time. We're, we're super impressed with your performance, but how much slower, I guess you'd say would have been had you wore, you know, just, a, a one of the, like a, the Nike Pegasus, I guess, versus the next percent. And, uh, that's where I think we run into problems here is, you know, you have that. And then you pointed it out really well in your book. When you looked at, I think you said like, Kara Goucher may have been the first athlete to miss an Olympic spot due to footwear. Yeah. I was going to say, I felt like that was really, that stood out to me in terms of just providing a great kind of aha moments of just being fourth and all of the athletes in front of you qualifying for the Olympic trials were in the super shoes. Yeah. It's really illustrative of what happened to her. I mean, sitting across from her and interviewing her about that. I really, I just felt it. I mean, Nike has been so um, disloyal to her, I guess. Like I say this at the end of the book, you know, she's training as hard as she can and pushing as hard as she can. And, you know, she misses the first time Colt walks, that kind of thing. She has literally given her whole life to this sport. And um, the tragedy of it all is that she doesn't know how good she was for various reasons, drugs and shoes. And, and it's, it's terribly sad. I mean, I get it on some level. I, I tried to, you know, I ran semi-professionally for a while and, and you do have to, I mean, at this point, the comp- the competition people you're running against are so advanced. You know, these are physiological specimens who are dedicating their whole day, their whole lives to being the best athlete that they can be. And so it's um it's just disheartening when you realize that you could get beat by a shoe you know that, that kills me and the fact that she had missed the last olympic spot and she had this huge build up she felt like this was her last chance and it ended up being her last chance and she missed it because she wasn't wearing the right shoe and uh, it's just terribly heartbreaking i mean there i wish there was a way to reconcile and go back 
and fix some of these records. I mean, when, when Zach, when you were just talking about it, it just reminded me how they, they, they hid the shoe. They, they, they used colors on the shoe to make it look like a previous model so that no one would ask questions when Galen Rupp's winning in the shoe or, you know, that the Nike athletes have some special advantage. And for a couple of years, no one had any idea there was a 4% shoe coming out. And so, you know, that's just, I mean, they should have been fined in some way for that at least because the shoes had, or I think even back then the rule was the shoe had to be on the market for available to everyone at least uh, by the start of the race or maybe even six months prior to the race. So you could train in, but yeah, I mean, Nike seems to break the rules along the way and, and mostly get away with it as far as I can tell. And, and, you know, this is very clear. And, and in the book, I try to make this clear, you know, they started as this scrappy young brand in Oregon, trying to fight the Germans, you know, trying to beat Adidas. Yeah. And they, they managed that by 1983. They had, they had outsold any other shoe company in the world, athletic brand in the world. Uh, but 1983 is a long time ago and they've been dominant. I mean, they lost for a little while to Reebok during the fitness revolution, but um, you know, they've been the dominant player for so long. And Phil Knight has said, we have to walk this, this high, this high wire, this line between being a bully uh, and being a rebel. And I just feel like uh, in a lot of the cases, they, they're just being bullies. They can get away with it. So they get away with it. And, you know, I usually say, you know, I know there's a lot of great people that work at Nike and, you know, so I, I do, I realize that they're not an all evil corporation. They are an American success story on some levels, but uh, in more than one area, they are way off the track I, as far as I can tell. And from my, what my reporting told me. All right, folks, this episode of HPO Podcast is brought to you by Bioptimizers P3OM. P3OM are probiotics that improve your digestion and nutrient absorption, helping ensure your digestive tract and immune system stay strong and healthy. While many other probiotics on the market don't even survive your own stomach acid, P3OM is fully tested to make sure that probiotic strains not only survive in your body, but also don't compete with each other. So you're as protected as possible from the growth of bad bacteria and other pathogens. While other probiotics require refrigeration and often die in transport and on the shelf, P3OM doesn't need refrigeration at all. So if you're ready to check them out, head over to bioptimizers.com forward slash human. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash human. And by using promo code HUMAN10, that's H-U-M-A-N-1-0, you'll also get 10% off your next order. So two things to remember, bioptimizers.com forward slash human and promo code HUMAN10. All right, folks, now back to the show. Well, where I think it sometimes becomes a bit of a, you know, a problem with people in their minds is when they look at it and they think about, well let's imagine had say Adidas or Reebok or, you know, imagine even smaller shoe brand had come up with this technology. It's, it's just too painfully obvious that world athletics would have slapped the regulations down on that shoe so fast. And it was because it was Nike that they decided ultimately, I think that, you know, we're going to allow this technology with some regulations. Now they are putting some parameters on it, but it's parameters within the range of a nice solid performance boost uh, from your, from your, from your footwear. But like, I think the thing that really 
especially in America, I think if people think, well, you know, if it was a fair thing, like, you know, well, if Adidas had spent more money on it, come out with this technology, then they would have benefited. And then Nike beat them to it. But that's just not the case. And we know that because Nike has such a huge stake in track and field with their, their contract that like, like Nicole said earlier, you follow the money and it's like, you know, why do you think these regulations ended up the way they did? (laughs) Yeah. The millions of dollars they've sponsored uh, USATF and the, and the, the uh, U.S. Olympic team, the American U.S. Olympic team. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they've just been working in this manner for so many years that, yeah, it's, it's, it's terribly disheartening. And I think you're right. If another brand had come out with uh, the shoe, it would have gotten smacked with, you know, fines and disqualifications, I, I would think, one would think. But I mean, it's hard to argue the counterfactual, but. Yeah. One thing I, I will mention just in regards to the super shoes, too, is that, uh, the one thing Jeff did say that has me thinking a bit too, in terms of a, a potential long-term benefit, this doesn't remedy any of the, or any of the timeline issues we saw from like the early 2015s onward, when it was only select athletes who had access to this material, but long-term now that the sport is potentially cleaner, I won't say it's super clean by any stretch of the imagination, but it seems like, like, and I think you mentioned this in the book too, where we've kind of shifted from this wild, wild West where like, it wasn't too difficult if you were uh, a decent enough athlete to get your hands on some big hitter drugs and get away with using them Um, to the degree where it was like visibly noticeable on some of the female athletes in the Olympic games. And to now where it's a little more subtle, where we're kind of working around gray area, using therapeutic use exemptions, doing things that are probably going to give you small advantages, but not quite as big as like straight up EPO usage and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have a ton of records, I guess is what I'm going back to in the eighties and the nineties that are almost undoubtedly very dirty. So Jeff was saying the nice thing about the shoes is now we have athletes who we can like presume are clean or cleaner and that are breaking some of these dirty records. So um, yeah, their shoes are helping them do that, but at least from a biological standpoint, <laughs> the records are getting a little cleaner and we're seeing kind of this, because one of the hard things with the popularity of track and field, I think too, is once we did get stricter on drug usage and better at testing, it was so hard to break a record because how do you break a record from someone who was doped to the gills when you're, you know, clean or relatively clean? Yeah. I mean, that brings up a lot in my mind. The level playing field is not a real thing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It just isn't in general, whether it's your physiology versus mine, you know, nothing that I did gave me the physiological gifts or detriments that I have, you know, that's, so we're not on a level playing field standing at the starting line. So that's a myth that I think you know, most people understand really isn't there. I mean, the level playing field with the drugs and the shoes, because there's genetic variability, right? Um, and the best way to explain this to a layperson is like, I, I have friends who can drink a cup of coffee and go to bed. Mm-hmm. And their physiology is such that they're not hyper responders and they can still fall asleep. Now, I would be up literally all night because I am a hyper responder and a slow metabolizer of caffeine. So that's once the same drug, so the level playing field, but two different physiological responses to it. And this happens with every drug basically, but also with the shoes, you know, there's a range from three to 5% is what the average is, I guess, but there are probably some non-responders or at least close to 1%. If, if everyone responded in the research, then maybe we can assume everyone responds to the shoes, but 
you know, there's, there's a spectrum there. And so what if you're the best athlete of your generation and you're a one percenter, the shoe only helps you 1% based on your physiology and how you run, you know, you're not getting the benefit of the, of the, of the soul uh, as much as someone who's at maybe Kipchoge's at five or 6%. And I know that's blasphemy. I love Kipchoge as well <laughs> um, as everyone else out there. And he's never been implicated in anything, but you know, it's feasible that he's a hyper responder to that shoe and he has dominated marathon, you know, for, for the years that that shoe has been around. So there's some evidence there that that's quite possibly what's going on, but the level yeah. playing field is just not a great argument. I don't think if you actually break it down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's tough when you get guys like that. Cause I think Joshua chipped a guy is another example of that uh, or kept guy because he um, has a great story has like little to no reason to believe he's done anything egregious from a performance enhancing drug standpoint, just busting record after record. So he's likely a hyper responder to the shoe technology as well. And it's tough when you see these guys who you think are doing it the right way from the work standpoint, and then they just, you know, come up on this technology. It's like, what are they supposed to do? Tell their title sponsor, no, don't give me that shoe. I'm going to wear the, what the, the Pegasus or whatever shoe they would have had before. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's a tough, it, there's so much, there's so much when you go down that rabbit hole. And the other thing too, just in general with, uh, with like performance enhancing and things like that too, is it's, it's also a, I don't want to say, maybe not a class issue, but a geographical issue. Because like, if, for example, if Nicole or I got caught doping, like super egregious, because we otherwise have very capable earning potential in a country that gives us basically limitless opportunities. Mm -hmm. Now you go to East Africa and you could have someone who is just a phenomenal athlete who is living on a dollar a day for their family. And now all of a sudden they get this pro athlete deal from an American company that can literally feed their entire village. And all they have to do is race for two to four years to be able to do that. It's like, you know, like where's their incentive not to use the drug that, the, that they may not even know anything about that their coach or their agent may give them. Yeah. You know, so it gets to be this like almost apples and oranges comparison too when you look at athletes who are implicated in, in, in how we maybe behave around them. Yeah, that's a really interesting topic. I mean, that came up with when we were trying to figure out in the early 2000s, or not, I wasn't personally then, but why are the East Africans so much faster than us? And so that was one of the explanations, right? That this is, uh, you know, generational money for them, you know, winning a race here and making 50 grand, you know, they do that a couple of times and they go back to E10 Kenya and you know, they can live their generationally, their family's now set for money, they can buy a farm, they can do things. And so, yeah, I mean, it's all muddying the waters, it's complicated. I, I, I do mention that in the book, maybe only one or two sentences. But you know, then there's the, you know, the journalist and the skeptic in me, it, it, you know, I mentioned, of course, I had to mention in the book, they didn't have in-state testing. So the Occam's razor reason why East Africa was destroying the rest of the world for the last decade or two decades is that nobody was testing the athletes. And I hate to say it, but we're seeing that bear out now. The tests are sensitive, they're being tested more often. And you know, the last Olympic uh, marathon champion, the female was busted, you know? And so, and it's happening a lot now. I mean, it's a super complicated um, topic. You know, what is making them better than everyone else? And, and we'll probably never really know, uh, but certainly they're motivated to a level that you know, a kid growing up in an affluent area in America, in Oregon, in, in America, it just isn't going to feel that pressure to perform 
And so that might be, you know, that might explain quite a bit of it. I mean, I'm, I'm open to that for sure. And physiologically, you know, there are studies that show, you know, the low distal weight, swing weight, you know, all the things that, you know, uh, David Epstein and some of these other journalists and researchers have come up with as explanations are great and probably valid to some level, but I can't help but it's analogous to Lance Armstrong before we knew he was doping. You know, the University of Austin in Texas did some physiological research on him and they came back to say things like his heart's bigger than everyone else's. And, and, and just they made the case without knowing actually what was going on with his performance enhancing drug use. And so and, and a lot of those myths still persist. You know, his heart is bigger than an average human's. It's not any bigger than the Peloton. You know, so like, yes, that's an interesting point, but he's not. And you, you know, so a lot of that research has been totally discredited now. And I'm sort of off on a tangent here, but it's so multifactorial. Um, you know, of course, we have to give them the benefit of the doubt, whoever wins from whatever country that they're clean until there's some smoke or some indication um, that, you know, they're not doing things the right way. But, you know, the financial incentives to bring it back to your point, you know, for East Africa or, you know, someone from a lower uh, economic status is certainly got to be a huge driving factor when you're tired at the end of a race and you're trying to push towards the end or the finish line. So I'm, I'm actually curious. So in terms of, obviously you did a lot of research in terms of putting this book together and you could tell there were a lot of um, tendencies to be sympathetic, which I would be. Um, so the gauchers, obviously that kind of, that storyline tears at your heartstrings, but what were your feelings towards Galen Rupp? Um, I was just curious because obviously he started under Alberto Salazar's tutelage at such a young age at a point when maybe he didn't have that capability of identifying right from wrong, you know, in a, in the sense of having that, that moral compass that we would expect from an adult. So what were your feelings towards him in writing this book? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a great point. You know, he's a, he was a minor. And so he got caught up with a coach who was eventually banned when he was a minor um, and, and for that, you have to be empathetic with him to some degree. I mean, he's a full grown adult man now. And I feel like, I mean, I, I tried not to have a whole lot of feelings. I didn't have any interaction with him because he wouldn't do any interviews. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I tried to be fair to him. I tried to be fair to Alberto. I tried to be fair to Nike. Um, you know, journalistically, that's what I have to do. You know, behind the scenes, I have to give them the chance to respond to accusations made by other people. So all that happened and the fact checking. And so they were aware of what was going into the book, even though they didn't respond to it. Um, and they just chose not to comment. And, and, you know, journalistically, that that makes you feel like they've got things to hide <laughs> or they're not willing to answer certain questions that I had dug up or was was ready to ask. And so that gets them out of, you know, whether it's Alberto or Galen answering those questions. Um, and that seems like a cop out on some level, uh, like you've got something to hide. And, 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 but, you know, I know intellectually, I have to give them the benefit of the doubt. And, and, you know, the book doesn't go out on any limbs. It just says, here are the facts. You know, there were, you know, more than once testosterone was listed on Galen Rupp's records. And, you know, that's interesting. And there it is. I, I don't then go ahead and draw the line because he's never been tested. And I talked to Travis Tigard about this because, uh, you know, I was trying to understand Travis is the 
uh, CEO of USADA, the United States Anti-Doping Agency, for your audience. Obviously, I know you know that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he, you know, there were a few things that I had found that I could not corroborate. And, and it, it made Galen look really bad. And so I called Travis and, and he was great throughout. And he said, you know, we, we went one by one and he's like, we were unable. Also, we were unable to verify that. And that's why Galen Rupp isn't suspended. And so it throws some shadow. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's not black and white. It's not binary. And, and that's why I thought for basics reasons that, that this needed a book, this deserved a book because there was a lot of explaining to do. Mm-hmm. And, and Galen, you know, he was a talented soccer player. He was a talented runner as a young kid and he got involved in Alberto. Now, what could he have known at that age? Could he have made the decisions when Nike's dangling a contract in front of you or, or fame and fortune in front of you? You know, Alberto, there were rumors about Alberto back then, you know, people kind of knew he was willing to try anything and that testosterone had come into his life in 1991, but it was more of a whisper secret thing. And I mean, partial blame has to go to Nike for ignoring a lot of this stuff throughout. And they, they've done a great job of that with all of their embattled athletes from Lance Armstrong, you know, Tiger Woods. Um, so you know, they, even after BBC and ProPublica had come out and said, this is what we found, which was a huge deal in the running world. Nike chose to not really do anything. They claimed that they did an internal investigation of him and found nothing, which is curious because USADA did the same investigation and banned him for four years. And so, um, you know, Nike kept shuttling America's best runners to them. Jordan Hesse, Mary Kane. Now, I just, that seems somewhat unconscionable to me. Um, but he's the local coach on campus. Phil Knight can look out his window and see Alberto training athletes every day. And so there was love there. I'm going to get back around to your question. <laughs> every <laughs> athlete is responsible for what they put into their bodies. And I put Galen Rupp in that same bucket. Um, now I, you have to have sympathy and some empathy. If you're a teen, uh, you know, an impressionable teenager, who gets involved with a coach who's willing to do anything. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I feel for him on that, in that sense. And I actually don't think he's really come around to what's happened because he still doesn't talk about it. You know, when he agrees to interviews, there are ground rules and people don't know this. You sh- I, I actually think you should have to write the ground rules on your runner's world art article. Mm-hmm. If you're going to claim to have interviewed Jordan Hesse, and her people have told you before the interview, do not ask about Alberto Salazar. You know, you should have to put the long list of contingencies on the right-hand side because it's just bad journalism. And so Galen speaks, he's actually, but now with his new coach, he's been talking more and more, but he really, there has to be some reconciliation. Like he has to, at some point, speak to these things. I mean, I, I suppose he can go the rest of his career and then disappear and, and never really speak to what happened. But we get a glimpse of it in the book from what he told Carrie, you know, there were times where Alberto was so overbearing. He's like, I have to leave Alberto. And, mm-hmm. you know, that would have been huge news. And that was right before second place at the Olympics. And he well, chose not to leave him. He stayed with him. I just, yes, you did such a good job of, of really um, being unbiased. And I think that came across very well, but just the, the, the visual of him flying a little um, car, like uh what is that called? Like a, a little airplane in yeah, his room. Little, like, I mean, <laughs> just it just gave the visualization that uh-huh. he was such a kid. He that mm-hmm. he was still such a child, and 
I don't know, to... So he, he had his testosterone right <laughs> next to his Nintendo Wii. <laughs> <laughs> it just felt like he was clearly a prodigy, but just just maybe he wasn't capable of kind of, I'm, you know, everyone can make the right decision. Right. And especially now as an adult completely agree, but I thought that was a compelling part of the book that kind of stood out to me. Well, yeah, I'm I glad think you up on that. Cause that is why I left that part of the story. And I thought it was interesting. Uh-huh. He's a child and everyone else is around him is an adult, you know, training at this high level. And yeah. Got his toys with him. I mean, it was it was uh, a reader's dream and a, I think a, a perfect way to write that storyline with him because when, I mean, I think may, maybe I'm a little particular in terms of like getting drawn to that storyline being that like, I mean, when I read, so like with my background, I got into running early on. I also was a teacher. So I saw a lot of kids at Galen's age kind of go through that process of like deciding what was their pathway in life and where they wanted to go and who they were going to listen to and what was going to influence them. And, you know, when you, when you kind of introduce Galen in the book, I'm just thinking to myself, like one thing I like to do with these types of books, I think like, okay, I'm going to rewind myself when I was like 15, 16 year old years old what kind of stupid things could you have talked me into if you bring someone with the, the cachet of Alberto Salazar into my life and starts telling me? And the best part about the book is I think like the further you get into it, the more you start to realize as the evidence mounts of how of a manipulative person Alberto was. Like the things he would say and do to kind of like, I mean, it, it's like pathological, like where like you, like he knows like where to start you and how to inch you forward to get you from where you're this innocent 15 year old to where you are a superstar athlete who has likely cheated on a number of fronts. And now you, by the time you get around to noticing it, you're kind of in this situation where you have to blow the whole thing up or just keep your mouth shut, which is, you know, it's hard to say what you do in a situation like that if you're not in it. And there's only so many people who are actually in that situation. And but it's like you said, I mean, at the end of the day, the bag holder here has got to be Nike because Nike could sit down Galen Rupp and say, hey, um, if this is an economic situation for the livelihood of you and your family, like we can make sure that you're not going to be like any way negatively impacted from a financial standpoint. If you just write a tell all book and say exactly what happened and like, let's get the record clean and let's put Nike track and field on a open, transparent, like if they wanted to do that, they could do that. And, you know, they're, so they're the ones I think that have the biggest weight in this decision. Um, And unfortunately, a lot of times the arrows get taken by, you know, the Galen Rupps and not not that they don't deserve any of the arrows, but uh, you know, it, it, it's so multifaceted, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. And there's coaches around him that helped him and there's, you know, athletes that fell in line and like gleefully, you know, towed the line and, and, you know, slightly hazed athletes into getting uh, certain things done. And it's, yeah, I mean, I think the bag is held by Nike on a lot of levels. I was thinking about it today, you know, this just wouldn't happen remote coaching if the athletes chose to live, you know, elsewhere, uh, or, or it could happen, I, you know, and there were some remote athletes, but it just seems like, you know, Alberto was able to become the director of these athletes lives because they're in the same place. They see each other every day. This is like their legit job that they go to. And um, I'm at two minds about that because it obviously benefits the athlete um, to have the facilities, to have the coach on hand. You know, there's a lot of benefit to personal coaching uh, that you wouldn't get, 
you know, accountability probably being the biggest one if you were a remote coach. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, Nike's chosen to, um, at least in my eyes and my personal opinion, do things that, you know, the book title of the book, when it all costs like that, that is their guiding ethos. This, you know, the ends justify the means. Um, and it leaves, uh, athletes holding the bag or band or co- or their coaches holding the bag or band because there's huge expectations on them, uh, to perform. And, and that's the only metric we have at this point. You know, I came across this, uh, this interesting, um, idea of having like a hidden scorecard like you have performance on one hand and then you have how you kind of treat people and comport yourself in the world and you know alberto just seems to have been so focused on the performance and the gold medals and the olympics and qualifying that it didn't matter what he did to other people um you know he was casting off coaches left and right and 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 poor athletes i mean uh, as i'm sure you did put yourself you know, kind of on the fence physiologically, you're not one of the best, but you get that $30,000 contract from Nike and a chance to do it. And you get Alberto Salazar and you move to Portland or Beaverton. And like, it's just heartbreaking in in a lot of ways that the athletes who dedicate themselves to this, you know, and to then realize what Alberto's doing or he's treating you poorly or he's for for the women involved, he's commenting on their butts and how fat they look. And it's just... It's just, uh, I mean, it's crazy. It devolves into this, you know, sort of dictatorship where if you argue against him, he sheds you, he throws you to the side and your career's over. I mean, Magnus, who became a whistleblower for, for a long time, thought my career is over if I tell anyone what I had seen and what I went through. And so there's just huge pressure there. And before I finish this tangent, it comes from the top, John Capriati, the head of track and field marketing. Like there are guys above Alberto who, who, who behave worse than Alberto and empowered him and empowered him. And so this is a long chain of a boys club and a win at all costs ethos where Nike's like, yep, just do what you got to do. Well, Oh, Kara's pregnant. We'll take her contract. The money we guaranteed Kara verbally, and we're going to give it to this other athlete. You know, that's what was happening. That's why they chose not to pay Kara because she wasn't racing. So they wanted to pay someone else. And since they write the contracts, they were able to sort of double cross her in, in that scenario. And, you know, there's no other way to explain that. How would you do that to a new mom or a pregnant athlete of yours? If you actually sat down and thought through what you're doing, you know, so it's, it, there is a long line from the top, you know, Trevor Edwards was fired. He was let go. And, and you can see the chain of command right down to Alberto through the Nike organization. And you, you can clearly see, and hopefully the book allows you to see like, this comes from the top and this is how they've operated for years. Um, and, and hopefully they can change for the better now that, you know, it's been exposed to some degree. Well, and, and one thing that like I really enjoyed about the book is it opened my eyes to some other levels that I wasn't really aware of before. Cause like I said, in the beginning here, like there are, there were a few big stories in here that kind of had come out that I was remembering and recalling, but just piecing together and realizing how deep they went is what your book did a great job of doing. And, one of them was just that, like I heard stories about Alberto Salazar, like body shaming, I guess, like the female athletes into saying, I mean, it's ridiculous when you think about it. I mean, here we have world-class female athletes being told they're fat. They're clearly not, they know it, but I mean, it's a psychological manipulation because when you think about it at another level, Alberto's mindset is I need to get this athlete to take this gray area or potentially completely illegal drug. 
they don't want to do it. So how do I get them to do it? Well, I'm going to tell this 20 year old woman that she's way fatter than her, her partners, her, her training partners. Yeah. And that's going to trigger her mind to go to, well, what do I do to change that? I can't be the fat girl on like, you know, like that type of man- mentality. So yeah. then, then all of a sudden they open their mind to like, when he says, Oh, just take this, all you gotta do is take this. And then it's going to fix the problem. And you know, it's just one more reason to psychologically manipulate someone into doing something they otherwise wouldn't do. Yeah. I mean, you nailed it. It's, you know, he's, he, there's a, yeah, I mean, it's psychological manipulation. He's leading them to this doctor, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Brown in Houston, who, you know, at the end of the day, they're not testing out of range for thyroid stimulating hormone. And so that lead up, that build up, that you're, you're overweight, this will help you. That totally, you know, led the, a lot of the athletes down the wrong path. You know, they weren't in medical need of some of these drugs. And so that's heartbreaking and crazy. And like I said, thyroid's a tricky thing and you're on thyroid drugs usually for the rest of your life and to get off of them, you know, so you get a year's worth of great performance out of that because you weren't out of range. Maybe it helps you, maybe it doesn't. And then, you know, you spend the next 10 years, like I said, for Adam or the rest of your life on the drug. And it's just, it's terrible, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, the pattern of his manipulation. Um, is disgusting, really. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. So before we get too negative, (laughs) I I do want to highlight one thing that I, and I'm kind of biased here. I grew up in Wisconsin. So I was very familiar with Jerry Schumacher when he was at UW Madison and a big fan of what he did there and at what he's doing now, because you do parallel him into here. And, you know, in, in, to Nike's credit, they support his, his uh, his organization that runs under their under the swoosh that presumably is doing things in a much different way. Um, and uh, I think that there's like maybe a light out of the end of the tunnel there. So like with my bias, like enjoyment of the Schumacher story, uh, I'm thinking, gosh, I hope Matt follows up with a book that just details Schumacher from like his Madison days to the, his, his pro track coaching and all that I, sort of stuff. I agree. I would love to read the story. I'm a big fan of the Bowerman babes. I, I yeah. um, follow the ultra running less than I do um, that group. So another um, story. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that to be honest with you. So if that happens, I'll, I'll credit you, Zach. All but, right, sweet. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll write a little blurb in the back of the book. <laughs> I send him your copy and write detail why, why I should be the one to write it. I mean, Jerry is uh, was and is impressive on all fronts. You know, he wasn't necessarily eager to go on the record and, and therefore didn't, but he did talk to me extensively for the book because he wanted the record to be straight. You know, there's some basic reasons he didn't want to go against so I'm assuming here, he obviously didn't want to come out against his employer, Nike. And, you know, he didn't want to be seen as throwing mud at Alberto when the guy was already down. He had already been suspended, but he did help me correct the record on exactly what happened. And so I, I owe him some credit. Everyone, I mean, he, he, was, he, gets, he deserves some credit for that because it took a lot of courage to do that because, you know, he could have just simply been fired for doing such things. But yeah, I mean, he does seem to be doing things the right way. Jerry's a smart, really smart guy and and really cares about the athletes. And, you know, I've been asked, how can these two teams exist in the same place? And, you know, I think hopefully the book does a good job of like, they came together to be on the same team, you know, Alberto had his heart attack and had some health issues. And so Nike hired uh, Schumacher away from Wisconsin to be the next Alberto to coach Galen 
if Alberto actually died or, or was forced to retire due to his health issues. And they had a coming together and then a breaking apart because, you know, their, their methodology, their moral compass, none of these things aligned. And so Jerry and Alberto uh, just didn't really get along. You know, there's that scene in the book where Alberto's testing testosterone on his sons in the Nike Lance Armstrong uh, building which I think is kind of funny. Yeah. He's rubbing testosterone on their backs and then they're running on the treadmill. And so in a in the few days that they were doing this, uh, Alberto runs into Jerry Schumacher on campus and says, Jerry, you got to come by. We're testing. Te <laughs> it's hard for me to even say. It's so ridiculous. We're testing testosterone in the, you know, in the Lance Armstrong Fitness Center. You got to come check this out. It's amazing. And Jerry was like, uh, thanks, thanks, but no thanks. And turned away just shaking his head like, what are you doing? What are you thinking? I mean, this testosterone, as you know, unambiguously illegal. You can't get a TUE for it. Like, it's just a drug and a, and a coach on the Olympic level, their elite level, should stay as far away from it as they can. They shouldn't have it on their person. They shouldn't be trafficking in it. And they definitely shouldn't be testing it on their sponsor's campus, on their sons who have no prescription for it. So sorry to take it back to negative, but Jerry was smart enough to say, mm, sorry, this just doesn't pass the sniff test. This well, sounds insane and I want no part of it. Yeah. And I think, well, I mean, I like that part of the book too, because, you know, the one thing I do fear with these type of situations are like, you know, who are the innocent bystanders who are doing things the right way and just happen to be like, you know, an athlete for Nike or associated with it. I mean, you mentioned it before, like there's great employees at my Nike. I'm, there's lots yeah. of them. And I mean, like, I have friends who are Nike athletes who are great human beings. I, I'm 100% convinced they're doing everything the right way. They've built amazing brands around themselves, but they're also able to do that because Nike gave them money to do it. And, you know, maybe it's somewhat of an ultra marathon thing where, you know, like the ultra marathon running like budget and then the ultra marathon running like payback to Nike is like a massive or a tiny drop in a massive bucket compared to like their NBA stuff, their, you know, all their sport type, you know, funding and things like that. So it's a little more standoffish, I'm sure, than it was with like uh, with uh, the track and field program or, you know, certainly like, you know, the basketball stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, it's just, I think it's just, it's definitely worth noting that like there is like, you know, there's, there's potential there. So again, the, the balls in Nike's court, so to speak, in terms of leveraging the potential there and the folks that they already have on board, like Jerry, to really kind of rebrand that image to a degree if they want to do it. And then also maybe focus on some of these individuals that are, are also doing it the right way. And the cool thing I think that we're seeing nowadays with just the continuing uprising of kind of social media and just, you know, being able to essentially develop like programming around yourself is that you can, you can kind of, to a degree, step away from having the entirety of your potential being tied up in a single brand's finances. So like, you know, I mean, when you look at someone, I mean, Kara Goucher may have been one of the first actually, now that I think about it in the terms of the way that she kind of branded herself as, you know, you know, the mom runner, which is a huge portion of the running industry, you know, women running and women or mothers running is big. That's big money for these companies. And I mean, Kara did a great job of kind of moving into that direction and, and still competing at a high level for a while before she ultimately, you know, retired from professional for sports. But you can do that a lot easier nowadays than you could have a decade or two decades ago. And hopefully that will be 
something that offers up a little more potential for authenticity in the sense that if I build a big enough brand around me by just creating content, telling stories, doing things the right way and drawing up eyeballs my way, now these companies are going to pay me just to keep doing that versus saying, I'm going to give you a bunch of money to win this race or make the Olympics. And when your only option of getting that paycheck is to make it to the Olympics, there's a lot more you're probably going to do in order to do that if you have to, in order to you know keep that livelihood moving forward. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that specifically, but that's a good point. I mean, ultra runners know this because the shoe deals usually aren't like, groundbreaking money so mm-hmm. you then piece it together with others i think like you said kara it was one of the first to have you know a big uh marathon contract with the shoe company and then place a few other brands around her uh, that sort of complemented that and, and helped pay the bills so yeah i mean it takes the pressure off that that one sponsor i was thinking this morning so i'm working on another piece and i had recently interviewed matt frazier who's now won the crossfit games five years in a row and, and he's a Nike athlete and we didn't get into Nike very much, but it was clear to me that he's got his own thing. Like they are one of his sponsors. He's got a couple of them. I'm sure Nike p- pays him quite a lot of money. I think he's the first CrossFit athlete to make more than a million dollars a year at this point. He's, he's crossed the threshold, but if he lost Nike, he would be just fine. So if they're asking him to do things or if he doesn't perform, you know, he'd be, he's diverse enough that he'd be able to, you know, his brand is so strong and he could just jump on with, whoever else wanted to fill that gap if he even needed to or wanted to. But yeah, I think that's a good thing for the athletes. I mean, part of the book, I tried to talk about contracts and how much people made, whether it was coach coaches or athletes. And uh, I mean, there's a voyeuristic interest to that obviously, but really the reason was, you know, there's the contracts are sort of designed to maintain this opacity. This like, we don't really know what you're making. So you, you can't use that to leverage, uh, and, and, and get a little bit more from a sponsor. And so I just thought let's, let's, wherever anyone would tell me, I was like, let's spill this out to the world so that, you know, athletes can have an idea what their marketing, what their value is, you know, and the only way to know your value is to sort of compare yourself to another athlete who's on similar ground and how much they've made in their contract. And so, you know, Nike wrote the, they, they started, you know, Adidas and Nike were the first companies to have athletic sponsorship contracts. And so they've always been advantageous to the sponsor and not the athletes. And that's why we've run into the problem with the time off for pregnancy not being allowed. Um, And so the contracts are gradually changing. I I know Brooks contracts are are great for athletes at this point. And and even Nike has changed um, the way they've written their contracts a little bit. I wish they'd released the NDA uh, entirely so that, you know, you, if you chose to, you could tell your friend who's also negotiating with Nike, what you make. And, and then they, you know, they'd have an idea of, of, uh, their value really. So it's kind of murky waters for sure, but hopefully it does. There are signs that it's getting better. Both the contracts are getting better. And, you know, if you can diversify with the internet and social media, then even better. Yeah. I think just, uh, ultimately like when the sport grows, a lot of that stuff clears up because as you get more diverse within the sport um, and running is a great example of this. Like when you look back at like around the time the Boston marathon started getting going and things, I mean, it was a very finite group of people who would even do a marathon. It was like, when you look at just finishing times back then versus now, like they've slowed drastically. And that's not because people are getting worse. It's because we're opening up to a much wider range of folks. So you don't have to be top notch fitness at your own level to run a marathon, you can decide, I want to run a marathon for a variety of different reasons. And, you know, that opens up market, 
you know, market reached into communities that it would never otherwise gotten to. And that just, you know, it offers up potential. I, I always think of this example. I can't remember who was telling me there was like a cyclist who he stopped signing contracts because he built like a massive YouTube channel or something like that. And then it was more lucrative for him just to use whatever piece of equipment was the best at that moment for his races. And then, wow. you know, keep making content and getting paid that way versus signing some, some contract and being stuck specifically to one brand. Yeah, that's brilliant. I, we're seeing that across all sorts of industries, journalism included, you know, there are certainly bigger names than mine who are breaking off from the New York times to do Substack or, you know, their own paid for newsletter. Andrew Sullivan's one of them. Um, Sam Harris has been doing this for mm-hmm. a year now. So yeah, I mean, the internet has allowed them maybe to, to not be so beholden to, to the sponsor. Can you imagine having your pick of, I mean, obviously <laughs> you don't pick a sponsor unless you like their products, but it would be neat, especially in cycling. So gear intensive that you could, you know, put the headset on that you want or the crank that you, that you think is better. Um, without having to deal or worry about breaking a contract. Yeah, that's interesting. Right. And then, I mean, the level of authenticity that comes in with that too, where like if you are big because of say a YouTube channel and you get a piece of equipment that um, would otherwise give you a ton of money, but sucks. And you're just like, Hey, this is not good for me. And this is why, or this is great for me. And this is why it is just, I think better for the consumer overall when they're trying to figure out what they want to spend their hard earned money on. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's really interesting because you know, if you see an athlete who's done something really well, and if they have a shoe sponsor, like on some level, that's like a stamp that, that um, they're legitimate in some, on some way. And so it is interesting to see, you know, the Nike contract to their bent, to their great benefit has been the contract in, in the sports world, you know, whether it's football, soccer. Um, and so maybe that is being diffused a little bit. And it'll be interesting to see. It's a, it's a, it's a wild topic. I mean, the idea that you wouldn't have a shoe sponsor if you're a runner because you want to run in whatever shoe, that's that's uh, next level thinking. It's interesting. Yeah. What, do you, what other questions did you have, Nicole? Were you thinking of anything that we missed? No, I've just been enjoying the conversation. I, I There's yeah, just yeah. So, much, um, to, so much to think about with this. I mean, it's kind of there's so much gray, but I guess that's just kind of the essence of life. It's just, it takes it to a different level. Well, it's the essence of sports too. I've Mm -hmm. I've gotten into this discussion before where it's like, you know, the rules around sport are arbitrary. The distance of a marathon, you know, is an arbitrary random distance that they changed for the King and Queen of England. It's (laughs) sport is nothing but arbitrary rules. And so and that can be frustrating on some level, but we have to have them. And, you know, USADA keeping the rules. So, you know, like there are a lot of gray areas, but there are rules to how to dictate these things. And so if you just keep yourself on the, on the clean side or like the clearly legal side, then, then you'll do just fine. Maybe you'll perform, you know, 1% uh, less good, but um, yeah, I mean, the book opens up a lot of, uh, gray area and, and interesting topics that hopefully athletes, you know, are, are now talking about and kind of working through, um, on their own. That's one of my hopes anyway. Yeah. Well, our minds are still spinning and, uh, yes. <laughs> hopefully this book will, will blow up Matt and it will uh, get into a lot of hands and, and a lot of readers, uh, um, uh, a lot of readers, uh, uh, to-do list, I guess you'd say. And it's, uh, <laughs> uh I think it'll be a, it'll be a fun one to see kind of keep moving around out there yeah it was exceptional um definitely enjoyed it and still processing a lot of the your 
um, your content. So almost one that need to read again, just to kind of soak it all in. Yeah. Yeah. You'll pick other things up, I think, as you keep going. I cool. Do that. Yeah. All right, folks. So yeah, if anyone interested in checking out the book, it's called Win at All Costs Inside Nike Running and its Culture of Deception. Um, the viewers on YouTube, that's a picture of it. Um, Matt Hart, if you want to let us know where we can find you on, on the internet or social media channels, definitely do that. So our listeners can go follow along with what you're up to and you know, any articles or future books you have coming out. Yeah, thanks. It's uh, just The Matt Hart uh, everywhere, Twitter, Instagram, and thematthart.com. Matt Hart was taken, so and that's heart h-a-r-t for those who are who are wondering um awesome well thank you so much for taking some time and and breaking down everything that went into this book and uh you know putting it on our radar yeah thank you guys thanks for your interest i appreciate it that was fun take care thank you thank you for listening to this episode of the human performance outliers podcast if you enjoyed the show please consider checking out my website at zachbitter.com or my social media channels at ZachBitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.